COVID period for us was just like it was for everyone else. It was terrible. We're shut down by government mandate for several months. Uh, we tried to survive by uh, just selling mega bags of popcorn from the theater. We tried streaming our own films. We, we got a lot of community support, but certainly not enough to pay the bills. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by our deputy editor, Rebecca Polly, and our chief analyst, Sean Robbins, who will be going over all the latest news and updates in the global movie theater industry. And in our feature segment, brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks this week, will be an interview with the Esquire Theater in Cincinnati, Ohio. Rebecca Polly will be chatting with Gary Goldman, the president of the Esquire, along with Julianne Reisenfeld, the vice president of operations over at Cincinnati's Esquire Theater. But before we get started, here's a message from this week's sponsor. Yes, Daniel, this episode's feature segment is part of our Indie Focus series brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display just and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. Let's jump right into our trade talk segment this week because we do have a packed episode of news. Before we do that, though, I just want to gauge the room here. Sean, Rebecca, during the pandemic, we all had to adjust our habits. We had to cook a lot more at home. We had to work out at home. Did you guys over the last two years buy something that you didn't really ever think you would buy because of the pandemic? For me, I mean, you already said it. It's the it's a cooking stuff purchase during the pandemic because I was going to become a chef. Darn it! Um, and you know what? I did I did make a few things. And uh, now that the pandemic is, uh, you know, we've we've gotten a little bit back more towards normal, at least as far as foods concerned. Uh, those are definitely gathering dust a little. But uh, I live in hope that I will pick it back up at one point. I think on my end, obviously, I have a rice cooker. I even announced buying a rice cooker on this podcast like two weeks into the pandemic, I used it twice. I mean, it's 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 just it using up valuable counter space here in my New York City kitchen. Sean, on your end, what's, what's lying around the house that, that you really have no idea how it got there? I, I mean, I know how it got there. I, I went through that period of, at the start of the pandemic trying to scour every online local selling website for workout uh, machinery. And oh, I that was that was like hard to come by, and it was then. extremely hard to come by. Yeah, I, that was tough. I I ended up meeting this guy at a grocery store 15 miles from my house to buy <laughs> every, a medicine every ball. Every story that you don't want to hear about <laughs> starts with I met yeah. a guy <laughs> in the parking lot of my grocery store, right? 15 miles from the house. So right? you go there, you got a medicine ball, is what yeah. you got there. Okay. Yeah. Follow the yeah. money. Follow it's, the uh, money. And you know what? I mean, it was practical. I used it for about a month and a half before our local gym reopened. 
but did I ever expect myself to be in that situation buying that? No. <laughs> I've never worked out at home until that until that moment. And I, was, I decided I was going to get my money out of it. Just black market medicine balls, what we're Pretty doing much. Uh, early in the pandemic. <laughs> well, in, in the large scale of things, this isn't, uh, you know, terrible purchases that we made. Rebecca, we will use our kitchen equipment at some point. Sean, you've got a medicine ball. If you ever need it, you know, I, I, I think of my friends that bought like the Peloton bikes that are now just on a corner, basically just to hang laundry on. There are so many stories of these odd purchases happening. And the latest one in a streak of weird pandemic purchases actually comes from the world's largest movie theater circuit. AMC theaters, guys, they bought a gold mine. AMC theaters bought 22% of Highcroft. So this is a literal gold mine, no, yeah, not a figurative No, not, not, a, not a figurative. I mean, <laughs> a, a, a figurative gold mine would be buying the distribution rights for the Rocky series from MGM, as we know, the most successful franchise in the history of cinema. <laughs> that's, that's a figurative gold mine. They bought an actual gold mine. They bought about 22% of this uh, Highcroft Mining Holding Corporation. Uh, it's... <laughs> And along with that came a 71,000 acre mine in Northern Nevada. So medicine ball, cooking equipment, that's a little bit quirky. Uh, world's largest movie theater, uh, they, they bought a gold mine. So that's, yeah, we're, we're trying to make sense of it. I think a lot of folks are. Uh, the AMC CEO, Adam Aaron, in the press release saying that uh, it was a sort of pay it forward situation. After being a company that was distressed during the pandemic, they saw another company in a similar situation, saw it as a strategic investment. And uh, yeah, so now they, they, own a, they own a gold mine now, AMC. It's, you know what, I, I'm just going to say what I think more people uh, should say just in general about many things in life, which is that as comes to the, the value and the strategy behind buying a gold mine, I don't know enough to make a judgment call either way. <laughs> I am not up to date on the gold mine uh, business. So I am just going to say I hope that ends up well for everyone involved. I don't know what, what sort of investment it is. It might be a good investment. Yeah, who knows? Out. We have no idea. We talk about movies here. But I, mean, I just look at something like Reading Corporation, right? This is a company that operates a number of theaters here in the United States and internationally. If I'm not mistaken, Rebecca, you might know this. They just had their uh, quarterly call not that long ago. Is that the same Reading from the famed railroads? So like the railroad barons, whatever's left of them, they just own movie theaters now? Marcus has theaters and hotels. I mean, right. writing as well. They ha they have real estate. They have, I think, a, a building that they've been needing to open up, like a flagship nonsense. I, I actually don't know if it's retail or what in Union Square here in New York. Food and entertainment centers and hotels, they are all kind of live in the same universe as movie theaters. They do. They um, do. Gold mines. Um, you know, I'd see a I'd see a outside movie in a gold mine. You kidding me? Yeah, why not? Uh, exciting development. Uh, I'd be surprised if something uh, similar happens. But if it does, you can find out about it on our website, boxofficepro.com. And as long as we're talking about publicly traded companies, Rebecca, big exhibition circuits, Cineworld coming out with their 2021 financial year results, the world's second largest operator of movie theaters. What are some highlights from that report? Yeah, nothing too crazy here, Daniel. Uh, certainly nothing of the magnitude of, huh? As AMC buying a gold mine. Um, an important thing to take into consideration here with Cineworld 
um, which operates in the United States as Regal, is that for globally, we saw a rise of admissions from 54.4 in the first quarter of 2021 through April and May, all of their theaters were closed. So um, when we've been looking at other companies releasing their 2021 results, you know, we've been kind of able to compare those numbers to a full year pre-pandemic 2019. And in the case of Cineworld, it's really not fair to do that because they weren't open for months at the beginning of the year. That said, in the United States, um, there was a revenue of $627.4 million in 2021, up from $280.3 million in 2022. Uh, looking globally, uh, we're looking at emissions of $95.3 million, up from $54.4 million. And that increase in revenue in the United States uh, represents a 123.8% increase, which is attributed in Cineworld's report to an 87-ish percent increase in admissions and around a 20% increase in average ticket price, uh, looking 54.4 million in 2020 to 95.3 million in 2021. Um, across the chain, we saw, you know, what we've been seeing from um, from a lot of other chains, a kind of reassessment of the bottom line of the financials of what theaters work, what theaters don't. Uh, they closed 25 underperforming sites over the course of last year, refurbished seven and opened 10. Um, you know, nothing too, nothing too groundbreaking in this report, which is is honestly refreshing because I think we've had enough of groundbreaking uh, for a while. <laughs> no surprises. Um, but you mentioned some of those closed locations, one of them being here in New York City uh, in Court That was Street. my local Regal. Right, that's your local that was my Regal, Regal that closed down. But we, we've yeah. actually seen one of those refurbishments, an absolutely gorgeous renovation in Union Square. It's one of the top performing cinema sites in the country. Cineworld coming in, really putting a lot of improvements there. I think adding some screens, making some auditoriums smaller, adding bar areas. Very interesting transformation here as we see the Cineworldification of the Regal Circuit. And the Times Square location as well. I mean, it very much has been brought in line with the uh, visual aesthetic of, obviously, of Regal's uh, parent company, Cineworld. Yeah, it's an interesting strategy here that we've seen across some of the major circuits in making sure that the locations they have open are competitive in terms of amenities. It's one of the points that uh, the speakers at our Giants of Exhibition webinar last week brought in, that competitive atmosphere of bringing in the latest projection technology, sound technology, even something like recliner seating, how important that's become. And for those folks who weren't able to listen in to that Giants of Exhibition webinar that we hosted on our box office live sessions series, you'll be able to listen highlights from it in next week's podcast episode coming out on Thursday, March 31st. That is next week's episode. We'll be featuring highlights of that conversation. But thank you, Rebecca, for that quick recap on those Cineworld financial year results. Let's actually move forward now to our weekend forecast segment with Sean Robbins, our chief analyst, looking at the box office, looking at the market, what we can expect this coming weekend. There is a new movie, guys. Finally, it seems like it's been a long time since we got a major studio release coming out. Sean, open it up for us. We've got The Lost City coming out from Paramount on Friday. 
what are your expectations for this movie and what are the stakes for this type of movie and endangered species and exhibition right now a romantic comedy yeah this is a it's a throwback i guess we can kind of look at it at this point it I, I'm, I'm looking at this as you know it's channing tatum it's it's sandra bullock these are two stars capable of drawing individually and i think put together uh, this is the kind of movie that you look back on something like Blockers or Game Night just a few years ago that could attract that adult audience looking for a comedy, and it's a good date night uh, candidate. Now, we're, this is a test. This is this is a major litmus test, to be honest, because th this is also the kind of film we've seen go to streaming more and more over the last few years. But arguably, I think the last few weeks and the last few months, honestly, have shown that people are ready to go back to theaters because even without new movies coming out, we've seen so many strongholds week to week, and we just saw some overperformances this weekend that we'll talk about. So, you know, for the stakes from that perspective, this is going to indicate where the 35 and up adult audience is at comfort-wise with going to see this kind of movie right now. And, you know, even looking back to something like Free Guy last year, it, it really showed that comedies still work theatrically, and I think this, this has the makeups of, of being being a hit and you know anything over a 20 million opening weekend seems very feasible it could even have some breakout potential to go higher so that's that's the bar you're setting here is that how we should define opening weekend success for the lost city in this market context 20 million being that bar or is that more of an aspirational goal for the movie to reach high teens to 20 i think is fair it, you know i would probably say 20 the would be the bottom if we weren't just a few weeks removed from death on the nile going in very low teens, but that's also a very different movie, very serious subject matter, probably an even older target audience. Uh, we're also just a few weeks removed from Dog doing really well with Tatum himself driving that. So uh, to me, high teens seems like the, the lowest case scenario, but I really feel like 20 plus is a good barometer and that's not far from where Free Guy opened. So that I think that's a fair, fair way to gauge it. And this is going to be theatrically exclusive coming in from Paramount, a big litmus test, as you mentioned, Sean, to see how this type of movie can perform at the box office. We need a diversity of titles like these. We need these sort of mid-range hits to really come through, fill in this downtime between movies. I think this is going to be another important data point of Paramount, which is quietly supporting theatrical in this difficult first quarter that we've seen here in the marketplace. And another studio that over the past uh, year or two has, has really shown their support of the theatrical exhibition landscape is Sony. Now, a subsidiary of Sony, Funimation, uh, had such great success last year with releasing Demon Slayer exclusively to theaters. Obviously, that title uh, was record-breaking in a number of markets before coming to the United States. Um, Funimation has had theatrical success with anime titles before, parlaying their streaming platform and the popularity that anime series have gotten and getting those fans out to the cinemas to see those anime films related to the TV properties. Um, and Sean, we saw this again with the film Jujutsu Kaisen Zero out from Funimation, which uh, really overperformed uh, compared to expectations. Yeah, we're almost one year removed from Demon Slayer just blowing away any number anybody thought would be achievable, especially at that point during the pandemic. But here comes this film, and we're again talking about another Funimation, now Crunchyroll release, capturing part of the market that's been overlooked. 
uh, severely overlooked and to the point where there really are no data points. There hasn't been a viable comparison point for this kind of a movie uh, in a while. The most recent after Demon Slayer was probably something like My Hero Academia, which has right. had several that did films. decently well, but yeah. it wasn't the Dragon Ball level. Z. Dragon, Dragon Ball Z is Dragon Ball Z one. and Pokemon films. Yeah. Yeah. And these movies usually go into like 1,000, 1,500 theaters. They they went over 2,000 for this one. So it, they're, they're really making a push for that demographic and it, it's paying off big time. And between this film and the record-breaking success of the most recent BTS concert documentary, I mean, it, it really hammers home the need for a diversity of content in between these big studio releases coming out. Absolutely. And that's Jujutsu Kaisen Zero opening to 17.6 million from 2,286 screens, coming in second place only behind The Batman this weekend. Another point related to what you raise here, Sean, on this wide release over 2,000 screen strategy. They actually launched this in a number of premium formats. It was available in D-Box, it was available in 4DX. It actually made 2.1 million out of IMAX screenings from only 157 IMAX screens. That's 11% of this opening weekend audience for Jujutsu Kaisen Zero coming from more expensive premium tickets. So when we talk about these niche movies with a highly engaged audience, hey, there might be PLF potential here. PLF is no longer exclusively the realm of big cross-quadrant titles. We can see it succeed with niche audiences. In the past, Daniel, yeah, those uh, premium seats have just been taken up by whatever big movie there happens to be this week, and there was really no room for those uh, those smaller niche films to kind of get a foot in the door. Um, in going to uh, IMAX, DBox, 40X, other PLF formats, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero uh, replaced in some of these theaters The Batman, which enjoyed its last uh, weekend before the release of The Lost City as the big studio cinema outing. That's right, Rebecca, with the Batman finishing up in first place once again at the box office. Not really a surprise, Sean, as we've discussed. The movie has now hit 300 million domestic. Looking at that macro number, that 300 million domestic figure, I think worldwide we're close to 600 million, if I'm not mistaken. How do you gauge the performance of this title so far? I think this is everything uh, that Warner Brothers could have asked for for their first theatrically exclusive movie coming off of last year. It's it's the first $300 million domestic movie outside of Disney-related movies since Joker. Uh, that was to be expected a long time ago at this point, but it still underlines the fact that you know we're we're now getting into this part of the calendar this year where it it, it will be more than just superhero movies. They'll they'll be there. They're going to be a big part of it, but it's not just Disney and it's not just Marvel. Now we've got DC back, and we're going to have movies like The Lost City, and we're seeing all of these holdovers still do well in the face of the Batman, and that's what's really important because it's not just completely drowning out the market. There is still a rebuild going on here. And, and everything is, is really trickling down, I think, is what we're seeing from the big releases as they come out. So, you know, at this point, it's on pace to easily clear over $350 million domestically. It could touch four hundred. I, I think that might be a little bit out of reach at this point with so much competition coming up. But you know, globally at this point, even with the China numbers that were a little underwhelming uh, due to closures there, this is, this is still a great result for the franchise. And uh, Sean, you mentioned that we are building to the point um, where we're, we're really rebuilding the market, different types of films. It's not all just superhero titles. Um, that said, 
we did see a um, slate of release date changes from Warner Brothers relating to their superhero properties. Um, I don't think nothing too crazy here. And, and certainly I got the impression that the release date changes, you know, between a couple months to maybe a year, they were more like the sort of things we would have seen, you know, prior to the pandemic. It's not like, oh my gosh, there's another surge. Let's push these movies by two years. I think that's right, Rebecca. Some of these changes don't seem to be, you know, industry changing in the way that you'd be putting something day and date. They seem to be your traditional shifting of several parts of the schedule that may have a lot of film traffic there, but they do create some gaps. Sean, can you go over some of these changes and then we can quickly assess the impact on the release calendar? Yeah, it starts with DC's League of Pets, which to me is really just a suggestion that they don't want to be the canary in the coal mine with an animated family movie at the at the start of summer. Uh, moving that from May 20th to July 29th, it gives Warner more chance to see how films like Lightyear will do and Minions. And then they can put out their kitty movie of the summer. And it honestly might have potential to be way more than a kitty movie. I, I think that's actually one with a lot of breakout potential. Uh, when we look at Black Adam going from July to October, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, <laughs> depending on what fan websites you read, it, it's part it's probably due to reshoots. I think the general consensus is that a lot of these delays have been have been caused by by COVID delays to some extent. Uh, and pushing it to October is, is in some ways maybe a strength because it puts a potential blockbuster in that fall portion of the calendar. Uh, and then the flash that's, that's probably the big loss I would say Ooh, from this year. Right. I mean, that's going to be a couple of hundred million at yeah. least that are just gone from the 2022 box office. That title moving from November 4th, 2022, all the way to June 23, 2023, how do you assess that impact, Sean, of, of this title going to 23? I completely agree. This was this was a movie we would definitely have had pegged at, at multi-hundred million dollar box office potential for a while. And to take it out of this year, there's no way to really sugarcoat it. Uh, that That's going to dent box office forecasts for this year a little bit because there's not really a replacement. Uh, they did shift a movie which we'll get to in a second. <laughs> yeah, we'll speak about that well, in a and, and, and we do have Black Panther Wakanda from the MCU right. coming out on November 11th. I have right. to imagine they don't want to have uh, yeah. that film on their heels. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was always, I think there was there was a movement coming there on some level. It was it was always a question of would it be The Flash or Black Panther. I, I personally thought it would be Black Panther for a long time, especially with how many delays they've publicly had in filming. But alas, uh, we're now talking about it being The Flash. And then we have uh, release date changes for two additional DC films, those being Aquaman and The Lost Kingdom, moving from December 16th of this year to March 17, 2023, and Shazam! Fury of the Gods, moving forward, actually, from June 2nd, 2023 to December 16th of this year. December of this year also is when the newest Guardians of the Galaxy movie is supposed to be coming out, though we don't have an exact date for that yet. And then uh, The Odd Child out in this equation, the Timothy Chalamet starring Willy Wonka prequel Wonka has been moved just a few months um, from March 17th, 2023 to December 15th, 2023. Sean, any quick insights on what this can mean for the schedule? Yeah, losing the Flash hurt, but I think the fact that they moved Shazam up from next year to this year, uh, it was a way to pad that loss a little bit. There's still this concern that it will be going up directly against the second Avatar film within about a week. This is really going to be the test. We'll talk about this a lot at the end of the year of how strong that holiday corridor 
is in a post-pandemic world because we didn't quite see that strength last year. It was Spider-Man and everything else. In years past, we could have multiple blockbusters. This will be a test of that come come December. And then, Daniel, we also had a few release date changes from other studios. Uh, namely, that is Sony's Bullet Train moving from July 15th of this year to July 29th. Nothing crazy. It looks like a, you know, an adult skewing uh, action movie there. And Paramount adding release dates for a sequel to Scream, the fifth film in the Scream franchise, also called Scream, uh, was a hit with moviegoers uh, when it came out within the last few months. Uh, that has been dated for March 31st, 2023. And then January 12th, 2024, uh, we're looking at an untitled Bob Marley biopic. Always good to talk about new movies coming out and especially padding out those uh early quarters in the coming years, especially as we don't know how long this COVID situation is going to continue. As we saw, making sure that to have appealing titles in the winter months is going to be an important part of building out theatrical schedules moving forward. But let's move on now to our feature segment brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks. Here in this monthly indie focus series of interviews, speaking with influential executives from the art house world, Rebecca, you actually got to speak with two folks from the Esquire Theater over in Cincinnati, Ohio. Indeed, that's uh, President Gary Goldman and VP of Operations Julianne Reisenfeld of Theater Management Corporation, which runs uh, three theaters, of, of which the Esquire is one. And Daniel, as we do these Indie Focus interviews, you know, for me, it's always super interesting to, uh, you know, you can glean things from a, from a cinema's website as to what they're about, what their programming is. But when you actually speak to some of these people, really getting a sense of where the priorities are and, and, and the spirit of the theater all most that you wouldn't get just from reading about it online. Um, you know, what inspired me about the Esquire and something that I think listeners, you know, in the kind of indie art house scene, but the wider circuit scene as well, you know, the the attention and the importance and how helpful it's been to their theater to partner with community arts organizations, uh, with universities. Um, I think it's a really interesting story. And I think it's something that hopefully will inspire some of our listeners here as well. So let's take it away. Here's Rebecca Polly's interview with the Esquire Theater. Gary and, and Julianne, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I personally, I'm always a really big fan of a, of a good historical theater. So uh, when I found out about the Esquire, I, I was just uh, just thrilled to be able to hear more about it. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So can you tell us a bit about the history of this theater and, and when you became involved? Because it is part of that three theater network, correct? Correct. The Esquire and the Marymount are both historical theaters, but our entry into the field was first with the Esquire back in around 1989. Uh, the Esquire had recently reopened after a long battle. Wendy's wanted to come in and put a restaurant in that site, and the members, the residents of Clifton fought it all the way up to the Ohio uh, Supreme Court oh, wow. to keep Wendy's out. And the way they did it, what was called a environmental quality district, in any restaurants in the area had to have china and silverware, where <laughs> Wendy's didn't fit the bill for that. So Wendy's is like, nope, we're not going to do that. That didn't work. It was certainly a community effort, and there were 
a couple primary players that uh, would go door to door knocking for donations for community support to get the Esquire put back together again and truly a community effort. Uh, looking at the information on, on the Esquire's website, it was originally created as the Clifton Opera House uh, in 1911. So you're, uh, you're over 100 years old now. That's just amazing. In fact, Julianne reminded me yesterday that this year will be our 111th uh, anniversary. So since we didn't get to have a 110th birthday party because of COVID, we're going to have our 110th birthday party during the 111th year. <laughs> I can relate. Box office turned 100 in uh, in 2020, but we didn't feel like celebrating it in 2020. So we uh, we did that in 2021. But we're going to have cake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we, we didn't have cake, so I already like your celebration better. <laughs> so you have um, you know several screening series that are that are catered to different audiences. You have uh, your anime series, and then you do the, the kind of midnight screenings of those those midnight classics of, of Rocky Horror and uh, and The Room. I, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how you began these kind of specialist niche screenings and how you really found who the audience was, was going to be for these and how you knew you had an audience for those. Well, we have, I mean, we have quite a difference here. We try to do a lot of different things throughout the year. We do Noir November with a lot of Noir films and we do Spooktober with horror films. So, you know, we, we try to do a lot of different things that will engage the community. And we have a really strong arts community in Cincinnati. So we have the Art Museum and the Taft uh, Museum of Art and the Museum Center and the Conservatory of Music and the Ballet and on and on and on. So just partnering with a lot of these people to kind of see what their interests were and what they wanted to see um, it's definitely been very helpful in kind of arranging the different series that we have. And our lo- our longest, like you mentioned, is definitely the Rocky Horror Picture Show. For, for 30 years, we've had it at the Esquire. Um, and we do, every other week, we do a, a midnight showing. So there's a great cast from the Denton Affair. They're local, and, and they all love to participate. And just getting, like I said, the arts community involved and, and what they want to see, and they come out. You do these specialty series, you do mainstream films, foreign docs, the variety of, of what you program is, is so, so large. And I definitely wish I could go because that Noir November and Spooktober sounds awesome. How do, can, can you get a bit uh, detailed, I guess, on what are the specific ways over the years in which you have connected with the community to really find out what there is an audience for, because it's it's easy to say, oh, you have to maintain that community connection, but how do you remain part of the fabric of the Cincinnati community, really? Well, it helps that we're all local. So, you know, all of us here are, are able to, you know, join these organizations or be a part of the organizations or have friends in the different organizations to kind of put the feelers out and see what people are interested in. Um, we are right on, you know, right next to the University of Cincinnati campus, and that has a huge um, arts community. They have a film and media studies. They have the Cincinnati uh, Conservatory of Music, which is there, and then they have the Design, Architecture, and Planning, which is the DAP department, which is all the creative artists. So, you know, we have a lot of teachers and students that are always kind of coming to us with, hey, what about this? Or, or oh, I loved this. And there's a lot of feedback, especially now with social media, we get a lot of feedback and suggestions. So it gives us an idea of, of what they want to see. And, and, and we're part of the, you know, the town hall meetings and things like that as well. So we can kind of see, you know, where the pulse is at certain times. In the hundred plus years that 
uh, that the Escort has been in operation and that there's been, you know, a movie exhibition community uh, in the United States. We've seen the demographics shift in, in, in downtown centers and moving into suburbs. And it's just, there's been so much change in the audience for a lot of these movie theaters and they've really had to adapt to that. Is that something that, uh, that was experienced at the Esquire? Well, the Esquire, as we know it, was closed, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, when we took it over and got it open again, I can tell you the demographic today is much different than it was in the early 90s. One thing that is significant is a lot of people assume that because we were close to the University of Cincinnati, that much of our support came from students, which I think it does now, but it wasn't always that way. It was more the uh, professionals in the area because of the university, because of the hospitals, a lot of doctors and nurses and healthcare workers and professors. Mm -hmm. And that was a big chunk of our audience for a long time. How'd you get that student audience in? Because that seems like that's a that's a really lucrative, good demographic to to get hooked on your theaters. Uh, that's mostly Julianne's doing. <laughs> Just being involved, we have a lot of um, a lot of our employees are from the University of Cincinnati as well. So being on the ground with them, talking to them, seeing you know what they're involved in, reaching out to the different sororities, fraternities, the different groups, the you know divisions of art, the professors, um, and I came from education as well, so that was kind of helpful to know where to navigate through to, to get the interest of the students. That's so important because there's such a, a fuss and a hubbub about how do we keep younger moviegoers and how do we get them into the habit of not just moviegoing, but regular moviegoing. And, you know, if, if, you, if you ignore that segment of the population, granted, we're talking college students and not preteens, um, you know, you're, you're really investing in the future of the cinema in, in a very big way. Yeah. And a lot of the, honestly, a lot of the college students and a lot of my friends, when I went to school there as well, they didn't even know about the Esquire. It was a new experience because it wasn't the mainstream movie theaters and chains that they were used to. So all of a sudden it's a brand new horizon of all these unique films and different things that they wouldn't get a chance to see anywhere else. And like people from the university are coming to you and saying, hey, can you program this? Hey, can you program that? You know, I, I, I love a good big budget blockbuster, but sometimes you want to see something else and the Esquire can, it just, it seems like such a great variety that you would be able to get such a wide cross section of people in. Yeah. And they use us a lot to watch their own films. The film students will rent out the theater so that they can see their films on the big screen as well. And that, that's fun for us to uh, do some of the local films. You know, they may not be the, uh, they're not going to win an Academy Award, but it, it's fun to let the students see their work on the screen and, you know, really fresh perspective to filmmaking. And that's what we do. With COVID, obviously, there was no real federal mandate in terms of what businesses had to be open and when and when they could when they could reopen. When did you guys uh, reopen and, and what's the COVID era been like for you? And what have been the most successful films since uh, you were able to open back up? So the COVID period for us was just like it was for everyone else. It was terrible. And, you know, we were shut down by government mandate for a period. I'd have to go back and look to see exactly what that period was, but it was several months. Uh, we tried to survive by uh, 
just selling popcorn, mega bags of popcorn from the theater. Uh, we tried streaming our own films. And we, we got a lot of community support, but certainly not enough to pay the bills. So what's what's worked well for you so far this year? I mean, aside from the obvious Spider-Man, which has <laughs> worked well for pretty much right. everybody. So, yeah, the tent poles always do well. But, you know, the interactive program we do, like the, the Rocky Horror, we did White Christmas every year as well. They have all had multiple sellout shows. So those interactive, unique programs are definitely um, ones that do well. Uh, we've had a few documentaries like Summer of Soul about the Harlem Cultural Festival. That did really well. Award buzz movies, Minari, Nomadland, and local stuff. Uh, we did The Boys in the Red Hats. We did a, a premiere, and that's about the Covington Catholic kids. Um, and then the independent directors, like Wes Anderson or Paul Thomas Anderson, Licorice Pizza and French Dispatch, both did really well also. Well, Gary and Julian, thank you so much. Was there anything else that you would like uh, our listeners to know about the Esquire or the, or the Companion Theaters? Uh, best popcorn in town. All right. Consistently. Consistently. <laughs> okay. What what do you do? Because I'm a popcorn aficionado, so I gotta ask I gotta ask for details on that. <laughs> you know, after you tell me the secret ingredients in the Kentucky fried chicken, I'll tell you what okay. we do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and I'm looking forward to one day eating some of that special uh, special Esquire popcorn. Great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. And that was Gary Goldman, the president of Cincinnati, Ohio's Esquire Theater, alongside his colleague Julianne Reisenfeld, vice president of operations at the Esquire, speaking to box office pros Rebecca Pauly in this month's Indie Focus segment, brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Box Office Podcast. We will be back next week with a special episode featuring highlights of our Giants of Exhibition webinar. So tune in next Thursday. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you again next week. Mm -hmm.